Good morning again, and uh, good morning also if you're watching online, or good evening if you're watching it on the archive later in the day or later in the week. We're glad that you're here, and I do believe that this series is going to be an important series for all of us because there's always something that's coming next in our life. Lives are not static. They are dynamic. Let's pray about that. Lord, as I unpack this message today about why we can't stay here, based on a historic truth, a historic time in the lives of your people, help us not to just look at this as as something in the past, something that applied to a certain people in a certain place at a certain time, but, but rather a message that applies to me, that applies to us, that applies to this moment in history, and all that you would do through my life and through this ministry. Lord, we commend this series to you, we commend this message to you, and we ask for your presence based on your promise that where two or more are gathered in your name, you will be in our midst. So move among us, Lord, and bring the message to bear that you want us to hear. We ask in Christ. Amen. Well, I just have a, a question, and, and uh, it's not rhetorical. I actually want you to think about it. I want you to uh, come up with an answer, and, and I want you to turn to the person next to you. Well, first of all, uh, how many of you either own a house or own a mortgage? You know, they're not the same. And uh, I, I want you to turn to the person next to you and say, even if you're in an apartment, what's the next thing that we need to do? Just do that right now. What's the next thing that we need to do? Stop arguing, stop arguing. Because you may not agree about what the next thing that you need to do might be. In fact, uh, we've been involved in home ownership for a while, and many of you know it's, it's uh, a whispered secret gossip behind my back that, do you know the Howers have sold and bought another house? In, in fact, in the last uh, 25 years, I was just doing some quick uh, addition. I, I think we've owned like 10 houses, you know, about every two and a half years, and And through that process, you know, we have done a lot of rehabbing. You know, we have uh, we have changed out uh, kitchens. We have changed out master suites. We have finished more than one lower level. And uh, through this process, of course, we've gained a lot of equity. And uh, it's been kind of an interesting uh, hobby for me, and and also a profitable thing that has enabled us finally to um, sell the last home that we had, which was way too big for us. And, uh, and we sold it, and we were able to buy a small vacation home in the panhandle of Florida because Dion is now the senior pastor with all the responsibility, and I can, I can play hooky now and then and take some weekends. And, uh, and then we also had to buy another house here because we intend to continue to make this our home. But of course, you know, you can't buy always the best deal. And so we bought a house that was 20 years old, a house that was built and owned by the same widow the entire 25 years. Her tastes are not my taste. And, uh, you know, it needed a lot of work. That's the only way you can afford to buy a house of potential. And so we've been busy doing some of that. And uh, you can see here that uh, she had a dainty, nice little sweet fireplace that a grandma or a widow might enjoy. No offense to those of you out there who may enjoy that, but it's just not my style. And so we uh, had to do some work here. And so we began to tile the whole front of that fireplace, and it ended up eventually like this. I think it turned out pretty nice. 
and uh, we're going to got a cleat buried there. We're going to put a mantle on that shelf. We also tore down a wall over here. In fact, I had a carpenter friend do that, tore down that wall so that that whole part of the house would flow. And then one thing leads to the other because, you know, you tore down a wall, you have an open space in your, in your hardwood over here and then carpet over here. And I think, you know, I want the whole thing to flow. And so we don't want this narrow gauge floor in here. So let's tear that out. So, uh, so we tore out those narrow planks that were set with two inch staples. I'm going to find the guy that did that and, uh, and punish him. But uh, that's a lot of work tearing those floors out. And then underneath that floor, there was also uh, a subfloor. Guys, keep moving it. Uh, you can see there was vinyl floor under that. There was backer board under that. And then, you know, you're tearing all that out. The cabinets were made out of fiberboard. Let's just change out the whole kitchen. And so, so we ended up changing out the whole kitchen, you know. So we're a house under construction again. Now, I know when it's done, it's going to be awesome. And then Dion says, and you can sell it and buy another one. And I said, no, I, I don't think so this time. So why not leave well enough alone? Why do the next thing? Why not settle? Because lives and houses and churches that are ignored fall into disrepair. And uh, rehab also improves the quality of your life. Let's face it, you know, when you walk into a house, you should feel like you're home. This should be a place where, you know, you uh, rejuvenate your spirit. You know, when you come home, you should feel great about walking into that place. If it's dark and it's oppressive, that's not a place I want to live. And so I want it to reflect, you know, my strengths and, and my attitudes about life. And then finally, it increases the value of your property. It's probably the most important way in which I've increased my own personal income. Uh, increases the value of your property. And it satisfies a basic instinct that we have to, to make a difference. You know, to make things better. I always want to improve a situation, you know, a process, or in this case, a home. Now, all this is applicable because Israel had just acquired a new home of their own. Uh, God had told them, I'm going to bring you out of Egypt and I'm going to bring you to a place that I will show you. And it is going to be a promised land, a land of milk and honey. But guess what? There's going to be some work to be done in order to get there. They had enjoyed some initial success. In fact, uh, before I get to the chapter we're going to look at in Joshua 13, in Joshua 11, it says, so Joshua took the entire land just as the Lord had directed Moses. And he gave it as an inheritance, you know, to his children, basically, to Israel and to their tribal division. And the land had rest from war. You know, God told him, uh, here's the land I want you to occupy. And Joshua did that. He occupied the land. It had not always gone smoothly. You know, in fact, uh, uh, at Sinai, recall, after they first came out of Egypt, where the Lord was going to give them their walking orders, the Ten Commandments that we still study, the sum total of all moral law that makes life better. Remember while he was up there and delayed, people thought, well, maybe he's not coming back at all. And they began to fall back into old patterns. They began to worship the false gods of the Egyptians. And Moses came down and he saw that they were worshiping a golden calf. And he broke the Ten Commandments in anger. And some of the people didn't move on from there. You know, God passed a severe judgment upon them. It had not always gone smoothly. 
They had whined about the process of doing what was next. You know, they complained that God was raining down manna on them every day. They could just go out and collect their food. They didn't have to hunt for it. They didn't have to plant it. They didn't have to cultivate it. God provided it. And he provided water out of rocks in the desert. And still they said, well, this isn't good enough. We would rather be slaves in Egypt. Really? Slaves in Egypt where they were killing your firstborn sons? We would be rather slaves in Egypt because at least we had some swill to eat there, you know, some meat to eat. You know, because they wanted to keep us strong for the labor that we had to do. And then at Kadesh Barnea, when God finally brought them to the border of the promised land, they sent 12 spies out into the land to, uh, to develop a strategy for taking the land that God had brought them to occupy. And out of the 12 they sent, 10 came back and said, we can't do this. The land is filled with fortified cities. They have horses They have chariots. We're nothing but slaves. You know, there are giants in the land. And the scripture says an interesting thing. It says they felt like they were ants compared to those people. And so they were. You know, because of their perception, their perception became reality and they were in fear. Except for two guys, Joshua and Caleb. Joshua and Caleb says, we can do this. Let's not forget the 10 plagues that God caused to fall on mighty Egypt, the strongest nation in the world. Let's not forget how he parted the Red Sea and brought us safely across and destroyed the Egyptian army. God is with us and we can do this. But the majority ruled. And so uh, a new generation would have to do this thing. God commanded uh, that no one over the age of 20, would be allowed to enter the promised land. They were going to have to wander in the wilderness for 40 years because they doubted that God could do what was next for them. And a whole generation of funerals would take place. Joshua and Caleb were about 40 and 45 at this time. So you can see that they were at least 20 or 25 years older than the oldest person that would be allowed to to cross into the promised land. There was renovation still to be done on this new home that God had brought them to. Even at the time of our text, uh, Joshua is now 100 years old. He lives to be 110, and uh, we get to our text. This is uh, from Joshua chapter 13, beginning at verse 1. And I'm going to skip over the description of the land that still needed to be occupied and just look at verses 6 and 7. So let's read these three verses. When Joshua had grown old, he was 100 years old, the Lord said to him, you are now very old, and there are still large areas of land that still need to be taken over. There's hardwood that needs to be taken out, there's kitchen stuff that needs to be done, there's fireplaces. You know, there's still work that needs to be done in your new home. This is the land that remains, and then he details all the pockets of resistance that still need to be cleaned up. Although they had occupied the basic country, there was still work to be done. And then he said this promise to those who would take over after Joshua. I myself will drive them out before the Israelites, Joshua, not to worry. I'm going to be with them as I was with you. Be sure to allocate this land to Israel as their inheritance, as I have instructed you. And so he gives them this marching order, uh, this thing to do that was next. A life... And a church that is well lived is a dynamic situation. You never stay static, do you? 
All you have to do is raise a child. You see them go from being a baby to beginning to take their first steps, you know, to being a young person. You see them go to school, and it's fun now to watch our granddaughter over here, you know, go to school and learn how to spell. And she's just constantly absorbing new words and new thoughts and new ideas. And then they go from grade school to high school, and then from high school off to college, and then, God willing, they go from college to a job, you know, and to independence, and then they marry, and there's interdependence, and then they grow old gracefully, hopefully. Now, what's interesting about this is there isn't just tasks to be learned. There aren't just things to be done. It's through these things and it's through these tasks that people change. How many of you would agree that I think through life, the most important thing is learning more about yourself, not just the thing that you need to do, but learning more about your abilities, your strengths, your weaknesses, you know, your creative potential. I think maturity is best defined in this way, accepting life as a never-ending opportunity to learn new things. Adjusting to ever-changing surroundings, and this is key, enjoying the privilege of the challenge, to actually enjoy the challenge that is before you, because that challenge will make you. The sad thing is that when you're done learning, if if you don't ever want to learn another thing, if you're done growing, if you're done changing, like I don't want one more change in my life. If you're done working hard, man, it's nothing but rest and relaxation now. If you're done sacrificing, you are done. And that's a pathetic way to live. That is not a satisfying way to live. I can't imagine just going to the golf course and then playing 18 and waiting all day for the next morning when I could go out there again. You know, that would destroy the pleasure I have in the sport. There is so much more... And so much more important things to be done. I like to say that God has not given us people to get work done. It's not about task. It's not about achievement. God has actually given us work to get people done. God's all about people. You know, he so loved people that he sent his only begotten son to die for us. He cares about you. He gives you challenges. He gives you work. He gives you meaningful activity because in the process, you grow and you change. It's really about you, not just the achievement of that moment. In fact, a while back uh, in one of our trips south, we stopped at Memphis and we went through Elvis Presley's place. Have you done that? Have you ever done that? You should go to Graceland sometime. And you walk through there and say, I'd have to gut this entire house. You know, I mean... He, he had every modern thing you could possibly have, the nicest shag carpet, not only on the floors, but on the walls. And I just, ooh, this is nasty, you know, and the nicest Formica countertops and, and you know, just, just stuff, you know, the, the nice uh, olive green refrigerator, you know, just, just everywhere you look, you just say, I did, maybe they just tear this down. But that was the best at the time, you know. It's not about achieving something because things come and things go. God is interested in using those things to accomplish you. I love this passage from Psalm 17. He says, deliver my soul from the wicked with your sword, from men with your hand, O Lord. You know, don't let me fall 
to the attitudes of this world. He goes on. From men of the world whose portion is only this life. They live for the moment. They live for, for accumulation. Whose belly you fill with your inheritance. I don't want any part of that. They are satisfied when they have children and they can simply write their will and leave it to their babies. You know, that's the sign of a healthy life. That's what the world says. But David says, and I say, and I know this is true and I pray it's true for you. But as for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. Someday I'm going to come home to you, Father. I'm going to come to the home that you have prepared for me in heaven. And I will not be satisfied until I awake with thy likeness, the image of God restored to me, a place of perfection on earth. You know, that's what I'm working for, something more important than the men of this world. Now, the truth of the matter is that God will do this work with or without us. His work will be done. At Kadesh Barnea, God said, I have this promised land to give you. But you're going to have to trust me. You're going to have to exercise some faith. You're going to have to step out and, uh, and tackle the job that is before you. How many will go? And the majority said, we're not going. And uh, one of the saddest scriptures in all the Old Testament is Numbers 14, when God responds to their refusal to go to what's next. He says, as surely as I live, declares the Lord, I will do to you the very thing I heard you say. We're not going to go. He says, you're right. You're not going to go. You're not going to go next. In this wilderness, your bodies will fall. Every one of you 20 years old or more who has counted in the census, who has grumbled against me, not one of you will enter the land I swore to provide for you as a home, except for Caleb son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, son of Nun. As for your children that you said would be taken as plunder by your enemies, made to be slaves, as for those people that you feared for, I will bring them to enjoy the land that you have rejected. Your children will receive the inheritance, but you will not because you said no. You said we're not going to go. Well, in your life, this is your Kadesh Barnea. What's next for you? Are you going to move out in faith or are you done? You know, and that's a good question for us to ask as a congregation too. You know, we have enjoyed some success. You know, when I, I came here 27 years ago, we were worshiping about 600 people. We worship on our site three times that many now. And then we have live streaming uh, another congregation of, I always say a thousand people, but they dispute that. But, but not only that, when you think that most of you only worship twice a month, shame on you. You worship online, I know you can do that. But when you, when you think about the number of people who worship here in a given month, I think it's closer to 3,000 people that we are touching. So we've enjoyed some success, just like Joshua had enjoyed some success. But now there's something that needs to be done next. Not every church is embracing that. Uh, you know, 10 out of 12 said, we're not going to go further. And sadly, that's true about churches in America too. Our pastor, uh, Pastor Dion, has written a number of articles, and I've heard him speak on this too, about the decline of Christianity uh, in the United States. In fact, from the time that I was born in the early 1950s until now, 
there are one-third fewer Christian churches. There are more people, but one-third fewer Christian churches. There are about a quarter of a million, 250,000 churches in America right now, 250,000 Christian churches. Of those, 80%, 200,000 are in a no-growth or declining status. No growth or declining. 4,000 Christian churches will close their doors this year. But not this place. We are not going to be a part of that. In fact, um, it it has nothing to do with age. It has to do with attitude. You know, I'm 64 years old and and I'm excited about what's coming next. And and Jerry Kieschnick, who was our denominational president is 10 years older than me, so it puts him somewhere in the 70s. And uh, he, rec- he posts a blog about once a month or twice a month. He posts a blog and I read it. And uh, although he's in his 70s, he's begging churches to do what's next, to do what needs to be done uh, in their ministries. And he quotes an article, a recent study that was done, where it says, in declining churches, the change that's necessary to become a great commission church is met with anger and resistance. The past has become the hero in declining churches. Oh, for the days when we were in Egypt. Culture is seen as the enemy instead of an opportunity for believers to become salt and light. We don't need the screens. You know, we don't need the modern music. You know, we don't need to relate to the culture. Let's keep the culture outside and not bring it in the church. The culture is the enemy instead of the opportunity. Pastors and other leaders in the church have become discouraged and they withdraw from trying. You know, you get beat around the ears for a while. You touch the stove and it's hot. You quit touching the stove. Our churches are not here to make us, the believers, happy, he says. They're not here to meet our needs, to satisfy our desires. We're saved, aren't we? Amen? You saved? You know? Should it be about you? No. Uh, Not to exist for us. Our churches exist to reach the lost. They're here to reach people who are desperately far from God. Is that right? I think that's what we're about. (laughs) And that will make the difference in this ministry. That will make the difference not just for this ministry. That will make the difference for you. It's just absolutely true. It's hard. I'm not going to kid you. It's hard. In in fact, um, I would say that what has worked well in the past is destined to fail in the future. I I heard somebody say this to me 20 years ago at a conference I attended. They said, you know, your your best process, uh, the things that you have learned that work well for you, God's going to take away from you because he doesn't want you to trust in your process. He wants you to trust in him. And I thought, wow, that's wise. That's really wise, and I've seen it happen. You know, where what used to work doesn't work anymore, and that's okay. The same principles apply You know, we like to say that the mission of our church has never changed. We exist to save the lost and to strengthen the saved, to live bold and courageous lives of Christian witness before a non-believing world. Why? To save the lost, you know. So we don't just do that as a congregation. We do that as a people. We do that as an individual. The principles have not changed, but the methods will always change. And then he said something else that really struck me. He said, those who have enjoyed... And those who have succeeded in the past will become barriers to the future because you will defend the past. You will defend what used to work. And he was talking to pastors. He wasn't talking to lay people. He said, some of you pastors won't be able to go forward in your congregation because you are so enamored with your own ideas, so enamored with your own process 
And that process will not work in another generation in a different culture. And if you insist on it, you will be the barrier. There were people that were barriers for you when you moved to this point and had success. You will become the barrier for the next generation unless you allow yourself to change. Unless you accept what's next. This passage uh, from James, uh, and let me, it's not on the screen, but let me just read it to you. It's, it, it's, you don't come to church to learn theology. You don't come to church just to learn knowledge. Now, theology and knowledge are important, but only as a means to an end, not an end in themselves. God didn't just slow love the world. He didn't do anything. He acted. And so we must act too. If we love the world, we must act as well. The Bible says, do not merely listen to the word and deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but doesn't do what it says, they don't engage. They're like someone who in the morning looks at their face in a mirror and then uh, walks away and forgets what they've looked like. But whoever looks intently into the scripture that gives freedom and practices it, lives it out, not forgetting what they have heard, but by doing it, they are blessed in what they do. Now, I said it's hard. Sacrifice is hard by definition. You know, the very word means, you know, this is going to be a little painful. You know, I'm, I'm going to have to set aside. I'm going to have to lay down something that brings me pleasure. I'm going to have to do without. I can't, I can't make sacrifice. I, I'm not going to play word games with you here. You know, sacrifice means sacrifice. It means doing without. It, it means setting aside uh, something for a greater purpose, a greater cause. That's true. But there's another truth about sacrifice It is rewarding by divine intention. When you sacrifice, God even says, test me now in this. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse and see if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you blessings so that you have no need for more. It's through the effort that the blessing is discovered. Those who say, no, I fear too much. We can't go up and take the promised land. God will say, well, then you won't go, but others will go and others will receive the reward, even your children. Let me just confess an unfaithful moment in my life. Uh, somebody, somebody said that it takes four years to get through the seminary and 10 years to get over it. Um, it's kind of catchy and, and I would like to say that's right. But uh, I've never agreed with that. I, I think the seminary education was really important to me. But I do think it takes four years for a young man to get through the seminary. And it takes 10 years for the congregation to rub off the edges, you know, and, and make him useful. You know how many courses I had in, in project management or, or leadership at the seminary? One. Parish administration. And if I read ahead of the professor, I knew more than he did. You know, it, it was not a high priority for them to teach us how to do ministry, uh, just what to understand about the Scripture. Well, uh, when, I, when I first came here, uh, Lord of Life down the street, up on Clarkson and Kerr's Mill, you know the church? It's right, right up there uh, where uh, traffic all gathers. Um, I, I remember they didn't used to be there. They didn't used to be on that corner. Uh, they were further up the street, uh, more towards the mall. I think Black and White is there now, and there's, there's maybe a bread company up there, and there's a bookstore up there. That's where they used to be. The mission department of the state of Missouri bought that land for them way back in the day. Uh, when, when I was first pastor here 27 years ago, that's where they worshiped. And they worshiped in a building that was so, so dilapidated 
that if you stood in the right place in the sanctuary, you could actually look and see outside through the corner of the building. You know, you could, you could see the, the, the light coming through the corner. It was just, it was just a miserable building. And uh, it was a mission church. They hardly had anybody going there. And uh, somebody came and made offer to them because they wanted to put stores there. They were going to give them like a half a million dollars uh, for that land. And they were going to purchase the land down on the corner where their church now sits and give them that land plus the money. And I thought, what? We need it worse than they do. You know, we were in a church that seated 400 people and uh, people were standing in the, in the uh, lobby every weekend. We couldn't get them all in. And, and uh, the congregation was uh, uh, less affluent then than now. Good people, but they didn't have a lot of resources. And we said, we, we've got to build a, a new sanctuary. It's going to cost millions of dollars. And the congregation was a little afraid of doing that. And I thought, why did God dump money and opportunity on them and not on us? And, and I wasn't being a very faithful leader at the moment. And, and I remember one of the wiser, more mature laymen who was busy training me to be a pastor uh, said, you know, Pastor, we're going to be stronger for it. It's actually a blessing for us that we're going to have to struggle because the struggle is going to make us better. And he was right. And look at what God has done here. You know, like Joshua, we've occupied the land, but there's still work to be done. God says, Steve, not to worry. I'll, I'll drive them out before the next generation. That's what he told Joshua. Not to worry, Joshua. I'll drive them out before the next generation. It's going to be also their inheritance. So this is your invitation. You're standing at Kadesh Barnea now. This is your invitation to do what's next. And I'm telling you from experience, uh, it'll be sacrificial. It'll be hard, but it'll be worth it for you personally, as it has been for me. And it'll certainly be worship worth it when you hear the Lord say, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in a few things. Enter into my joy. Let me pray. Gracious Lord, we thank you for the privilege. We thank you for the challenge. We thank you for the opportunity of sacrifice. And uh, we pray, Lord, that we would have the courage to say, I know there are giants in the land. I know there are fortified cities that need to be taken. I, I know that the task seems greater than our resources, but I know that you will go before us and you will provide all that is necessary to accomplish what's next. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.